Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 361 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. Super excited that you're here as I'm talking to Emmy Neatfeld, who wrote a book that I loved. Um, and we are going to be talking about the, ne- the necessity of taking a break. You might need it. So stick around for that interview. It's thoroughly enjoyable and you'll want to read her book, Acceptance. I promise you. All right. What has been going on around here? Big news. Big news. Big news. The Seven Miracles of Beatrix Holland has been sold. Oh, I probably shouldn't see the publisher yet because I haven't signed. It hasn't got out in publisher marketplace. Any of those things. I haven't signed yet. It's not actually official. So I really shouldn't be talking about it at all. But you know what? I've been around long enough to know that um, as long as I'm not a total jerk right now, the deal will go through and I will sign it and all of those things. So I'm not going to say the publisher, but it is with one of the big five and it is a, an imprint at one of the big five that it's a, with one of the big five I've never been with before, brand new publisher, brand new imprint to me. I love the editor. Um, And so last week, what happened in the last couple of weeks was, so let me back up. The seven miracles of Beatrix Holland is a book that I wrote last year. I wanted to write it quickly and I wanted to write something that just gave me joy, absolute joy. I was writing it for myself. I was writing it for self-publishing, period. I was not going to offer this to my agent. I just wanted, sorry, if you just heard that, I'm taking off my sweater because I just overheated with excitement. Um, I just wanted to have fun and not worry about the market at the same time. I was thinking a little bit about market in terms of like, I was going to self-publish this. And then I thought, I'll make it a series. I'll make some money. And I decided paranormal women's fiction, did a little bit of research into it. It, I have always loved contemporary women's fiction with magical elements, call it magical realism, like Sarah Addison Allen or paranormal. I've loved that since I was, I don't know, 17 years old. That's been my jam. And I wanted to write it. So I wrote it and I wrote it in seven weeks. I revised it in five. I hired an editor. I did the edits. I hired my favorite editor and did the edits. Um, So I was moving towards self-publishing. And then I just kind of hit this wall with thinking about marketing it and writing a second book. I don't love writing in series. Would I write in series if it was going to make me a lot of money? Probably if I could be guaranteed that, but this is a niche book. This is paranormal midlife women's fiction that's queer. So I was already kind of narrowing this niche for self-publishing. And did I want to commit to that niche for a series? I suddenly went, no, I love this book. I love this book. It's my favorite book that I've written so far, but I thought I'll just let my agent see it. And um, my agent often I love my agent, but she often wants enormous rewrites that are exhausting. And I didn't want to do that because, which is why she never even saw it before I did the edits. She got the edited version and said, this is great. I have a couple of suggestions if you want to do those. And they were small and they were good. So I did them in about a week. And then she took it out in January. 
And y'all, we have heard, well, we haven't heard crickets. We have heard a lot of rejection. So for, it's middle of May. So for four months, we just got rejection after rejection. Uh, multiple times, the editor really liked it and took it to acquisitions, but couldn't get it beyond acquisitions because it's not about an editor wanting to buy your book. That editor at whatever imprint has your book. They need to talk everybody around them into championing this book to put money behind it. They need to get sales on board. They need to get marketing on board. They need to get other editorial staff on board to buy a book and they would take it to acquisitions and it wouldn't make a pass. So I just kept getting rejected with really beautiful rejections. that said, we love Rachel's writing, but we can't do this book. Um, and I got to tell you, it didn't hurt. It, not one rejection hurt because in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, you know what? We're just trying this to see if I can make enough money to justify not self-publishing. It's not actually the words that I sent to my agent, although she, I know she knew that in the back of her mind, because at first I had told her, I am just writing this for self-publishing, but do you want to look at it? And if you could sell it quickly, then for a, for a reasonable amount of money, then maybe I would consider that. But otherwise I'm self-publishing this. So she knew that, but rejection after rejection. And I know that she was getting frustrated, but I wasn't because if it didn't sell to a publisher, I was going to self-publish it happily. And then two weeks ago, we got an offer from a traditional publisher, but not um, not one of the big five, a, a smaller press, but a big player in commercial fiction. And that was exciting. And then a different publisher was interested. And, and then this other publisher was interested. And I had phone calls with all of them, but I really wanted the one that we're going with. And I got to tell you, the very first offer that we got was very small. It was very small. I'll just put it that way. It was, um, I've heard, I've heard of people who have hired covers for, uh, that amount <laughs> for their self-published books. So, um, we weren't going to go with that one, but I tell you this because what that allowed my agent to do was to go back to all the other age, oh, sorry, all the other editors who still had the book, who hadn't responded to her yet in the last five months. Um, to say, Rachel's got an offer on the table. Do you want time to look at this book? And several of them said, oh yes, yeah, it's on my pile and I just haven't got to it. Can I have more time? So then we had, so we had the first offer and then we had three more editors get into being interested in it. Cause you know, once one person wants you, everybody else wants you. Uh, so my agent put a closed date on it, which was last Friday and it was a best bid kind of situation. Somebody could come in with a preempt of a ton, a ton, a ton of money and knock everybody else out of the water. But, but what normally happens in those is everybody just gives their best bid and we pick the one that we like the best. And the bid that came in from the editor I loved best was by far the best offer. It is enough that it justifies me not self-publishing this. Um, and it's, it's not a huge, huge amount, but it is the same amount as I made on my last book. Um, from a different publisher as an advance. And so it's not going backwards, which I like. And it's to me, a really decent sized amount of money. And I wish I could tell you, but honestly, the last time I was telling advances, I got in trouble. <laughs> I was told um, not to do that, not supposed to do that. So eventually I will tell you how much I made because then it won't be a big deal. 
So maybe by next year, I'll tell you, I'm not keeping that from you on purpose. I'm just not supposed to, which I hate because I like transparency with money. You will know eventually it's not a huge sum of money, but it's a good sum of money that I'm really proud of and I'm happy with. And it's a little bit more than my minimum that I said I would accept. So huzzah. And I get to work with this amazing editor who I have to tell you really understood the book, really understood what I was doing, really got the joy. And she doesn't want a series from me. What she wants is to cultivate a relationship. And I've heard this before, but um, this time maybe it'll actually happen where we cultivate this readership of people who want to read contemporary women's fiction with magical elements, which is what I've wanted to write my whole life. This is the genre I've always wanted to be in. And she wants to cultivate that. So I'll write the next one, maybe in the same world, perhaps, or maybe in a different place and time, but with the same feeling. And the thing that I'm so excited about with this book is that the feeling of that book, writing that book was just joy. I, it went, we will, it went woo woo, which is fine because it's a book about miracles. Um, but it went woo woo in that every day I would ask the book what it wanted. I would ask my universe, spirit of all life, higher power, whatever you want to call it, what it wanted me to do with the book that day. How could I, I know some of you are going to roll your eyes, but how could I serve the book that day? How could we have fun together? How could we just play? What, what would we do today? And I had, I had a little journal inside the book that I would, I often do this in my books. I have a little journal entry and every day I would sit down and instead of journaling about what I was going to write that day, which is what I normally do, I would write a letter to the book. I would have a conversation. I'd say, good morning. How are you? what's going on today? What are we going to do? Do you have any ideas? Because I thought about this, but what, what do you think? What should we do next? And um, I really got so much of this from my friend, Mona McDermott, who is going to be on the show. I'm so excited um, as her book is coming out, but she has a beautiful podcast called Ease Lessons. I was on that when I was working on my memoir, but I was also thinking about writing this book when I was on that show. I can't remember if I was writing this book at that time or not, but um she talks a lot about ease and joy and finding and relaxing into the person you're really supposed to be, the person you really are. And that's what this book was. For the very first time in my life, I stepped outside the outside my controlling self and got really truly into my playful self. And it was wonderful. And it showed. It showed in this book. So I am stupid excited. I'm so happy. I will let you know when everything is official, but it will probably be coming out in spring, Northern hemisphere, 2025. So about, you know, a little less than two years, which is normal. Um, traditional publishing usually takes about 18 months to two years to produce a book. It's a little bit longer right now than it normally has been after COVID and supply chain issues. Um, everything is looking more, from what I hear, everything is looking about two years out from when you sell the book, it'll come out. Um, so I just feel like there's tons of time. The editor doesn't want many edits and you might think, oh, Rachel, you already got it edited. But I've said this before on the show, I'll say it again. You could write a book and hire a hundred different editors and every single one of those editors would have a different idea for your book and you get to choose what is best for your book. But um, she presented me, all of the editors I met with uh, on Zoom presented me with their editorial vision of the book, which was absolutely fascinating. Plus it was free advice for the book, right? Uh, but the editor that we went with, I loved what she said. 
um, about the things she does want to change and she, and that she did think would make it stronger. And I cannot wait to work with her. And I feel very, very, very grateful and happy and excited. And, um, I haven't had a book come out in like two years. So this just feels wonderful. And, I'm trying to decide what little gift I'm going to buy myself because um, we need the money to live. My wife is still unemployed, but uh, I have always bought myself like a real fancy pair of shoes. I love Fluvogs. They're incredibly expensive. And it used to be that when I would sell a traditional book with my um, book advance, I would buy one pair of Fluvogs. But girl, I don't go out. I don't wear heels. I don't need their flats. I have enough shoes, but I don't have a really good cute pair of rain boots. So I might get myself a good pair of rain boots that has very good sticking action. Cause now I'm scared to walk on slippery Hills, like the one behind my house since I fell. Um, my butt is a lot better. Thanks for asking. And I don't know, I'm also obsessed with suitcases and there's this little travel pro that's like a hundred dollars that has been in my Amazon shopping cart for about a year. And I might get that. Oh, I hear my wife coming back with the dog. So if you hear excitement outside. That's what's happening. Um, but yeah, I feel very, very pleased and very lucky and very happy. And it just was easy. I just kept asking this book, could we, could we be easy about this? And when I gave it to my agent, I was like, it better sell in two weeks or I'm going to self publish it. And in fact, oh my gosh, I just remember this in the, at the end of March, I emailed, no middle of March, I emailed my agent to say, um, I think I'm going to self publish seven miracles in April. Um, so can you nudge the editors? And if they don't want it by April 1st, I'll self-publish. And she, and she was like, okay, I'll nudge them, but give me a little bit more time. Give them a little bit more time. And I was like, oh, all right. I'm trying to be easy with this. That's fine. And I didn't want to do all the work of self-publishing it. It's not a lot of work, but it was honestly easier for me just to let it ride, continue to let it ride. And she was right. And I'm so glad that I did. And just to continue following this ease is what I want to do. I want to do this with my next book. I have no idea what the next book I will write will be. This was a one book deal. This was not a two book deal, but it implied in those kind of conversations is um, we would like to continue this relationship and maybe you will continue to write these books for us. And maybe you won't, there's never a guarantee, but I'm waiting for that idea to come and bubble up and have fun. So anyway, I'm just so excited to tell you about that. And I'm stoked. I'm super stoked. And uh, let's get into the interview in a moment. But first, I want to thank new patrons, Susan Smith. Thank you so much. I wish for you that your ink be the perfect color and may your favorite pen never run dry, but that your journal will always be almost full so that you have to go buy a new one. Isn't that a blessing that all <laughs> writers want? Oh my goodness. I want that for myself. Uh, to Tara East. Thank you, Tara. I wish for you a morning sunrise that reminds you of the best, happiest day of your childhood and that the feeling of that lingers as long as you want it to. And to Luisa De Luca. Hi, Luisa. I wish for you enough sleep and rest that when you wake, you have the energy to do every single thing you want to do and still have time for rest and delight with the ones that you love. So thank you to all of my patrons. You can always go check that out. Patreon.com slash Rachel. You can read all the essays, get all the extra bonus content, including early access to the Black Karen with me and Sasha over there at Patreon. 
Now let's jump into the interview a little bit about Emmy Neatfeld. Emmy Neatfeld is a journalist, mental health activist, and author of Acceptance, a Memoir. After graduating from Harvard College in 2015, she worked as a software engineer, an experience she wrote about in her viral New York Times essay after working at Google, I'll Never Let Myself Love a Job Again. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in The Atlantic, Teen Vogue, Slate, and other publications. She lives in New York City with her family and stuffed animals. Please enjoy the show and happy writing to all of you. Onward we go. This episode is brought to you by my book, Fast Draft Your Memoir, Write Your Life Story in 45 Hours, which is, by the way, totally doable, and I tell you how. It's the same class I teach in the Continuing Studies program at Stanford each year, and I'll let you in on a secret. Even if you have no interest in writing a memoir yet, the book has everything I've ever learned about the process of writing, and of revision, and of story structure, and of just doing this thing that's so hard and yet all we want to do. Pick it up today. Well, I am so pleased to welcome you to the show today. Will you please share your name and your pronouns with us? Um, my name is Emmy Niedfeld, and I use she, her pronouns. Thank you, Emmy. I am so excited to talk to you today because we were uh, connected by our mutual friend, Tiffany Yates Martin, and she told me about you and your book. And then I got a copy of the book and it is a beautiful memoir called Acceptance. And it's your debut, right? Mm-hmm. How has it felt to have this book out in the world? Let's just jump in there. It's been so so amazing. There's obviously ups and downs with any publishing process, but I worked on the book for seven years before it came out. And so it's just such a relief to be like, okay, I can move on with my life now. To have it done and have it out there. And wow. What is it like to be getting response from people? Because I'm sure you are. Yeah. it. I'm really grateful that I published some essays first because that let me kind of test the waters of like, okay, people have read these intimate details of my life and they feel like they know me in the same way that I feel like I know some of my favorite memoirists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so overall, I think it's been, it's felt really good. It's felt like being part of this community that I didn't even know existed. How do you handle yeah. that um, when people feel like they know you because that is the perennial memoirist's problem, I think. Yeah. In some ways, I think I'm more, more used to it. Like, I feel like I walk through the world just assuming like people, people know these things about me, even though obviously Mm. not everyone has read, read the book. Um, and, and I think it has inspired me to have slightly better boundaries Mm. around, um, you know, what I do share in person and how I feel like I have to spend my time. Um, so that's actually been really positive to be like, okay, just because you know, feel like, you know, me doesn't mean that I know you, you know? Oh, exactly. That is, that is all, that's always (laughs) like my stomach just tightened up. That's always a struggle. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to jump into the, how you get all, how how did you get it done? So you worked for seven years on it. Where does right? Where did I guess I'd like to ask? Where did writing fit into your life, and where does it fit now? What does that look like? That's a great question. So when I started the book, I was three months out of college, and I was working full time at Google, and I went to like a corporate goal setting workshop, and I was like, I want to write a book, 
And so my very, that very first month, it happened to be November, which is National Ah. Novel Writing Month. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to write 50,000 words this month. And I, so I did that in about 45 minutes a day, usually Mm -hmm. after work. And then after that, I kind of steadily ramped up the amount of time I was spending on editing the drafts. And so I would wake up at like, as soon as I got out of bed, I would throw on my clothes, tie my hair up and then go to a coffee shop, block all the internet, turn off my phone and then work until about 10, 10 or 11 Mm AM, which are normal tech start times. I feel very lucky that that's the case. Um, And then sometimes I would edit after work too, but um, for good, like four or five years, that was my routine seven days a week. Um, I didn't do my corporate job on the weekends, but um, every single day I was like, I can't break the chain. Have yeah. to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think like that it was good for me, but it was not sustainable until t- into today. And so now yeah. it's actually, my work is very, very different where I am doing more freelance articles, personal essays. And so I still block the internet, hide my phone, and then I turn on a timer. It's called flow. And it's made Ooh. to do Pomodoros. Yeah. Where it's Love like the 25 minutes of work. Yeah, yeah. Five minutes off. But this one, you can adjust it. So I have yeah. it on for 30 minutes. And honestly, just that action of of setting the timer, I almost never notice when it stops. But it's mm-hmm. just that promise to myself. Like, I only have to do this for 30 minutes. I can do 30 minutes. Um, and then it helps me dive in. Oh, I love, I love that. What well, I, I haven't tried flow. I will have to try that one. I use something called be focused, but I feel like it's not mm. quite right. And, but you, I can also yeah. adjust the time. And for me, when I'm really into a project, yeah. 45 minutes is my time, 45 minutes on 15 minutes off. But then like recently I've been doing twenties, 20 has just yeah. been feeling good, but there's nothing That's like good. a timed kind of thing. So what are you, if you don't mind me asking, you could feel free to set yeah. a boundary. What are you working on now? Um, so I have a bunch of pieces coming out tonight. I I literally have a draft due tonight to my editor um, <laughs> that is like in a million pieces um, about what happens after quitting your job and kind of the regret and the loss that I and a bunch of other people felt after stepping away from these like prestigious roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time that by the time that this runs, like it'll probably be out so people can go read it at the Atlantic. Um, but that's going to oh, be my, congratulations. my so thank cool. you. It was my dream to, it's been my dream to write for them. And so I actually have three pieces coming out um, with them in the next like few months. Yeah. So it's so exciting. Um, and that's, and that's sort of really fun thing about, for me about publishing a book is I think, you know, I think no matter where we are in our writing careers, we, we see all the rejection. You see Mm -hmm. it every single day, like with all the emails from editors or just feeling like the work isn't good enough to even send out. But I had never anticipated, oh, things would start to happen that I hadn't expected or that I hadn't dreamed of. And that has been really, really cool. And I hope every writer listening like sticks with it long enough to have that happen for them. No, that is so fun and wonderful, wonderful to hear. And I also do appreciate that the, the essay is still in pieces and you're putting it together. Luckily, this is a short show. We'll get you yeah, back to good. work soon. Thank God. But oh, I can't wait to, I cannot wait to read it. So what is the your biggest challenge when it comes to writing? My biggest challenge is structure, mm. where I... I struggle with this so much and I honestly feel like I need somebody else to read it and then tell me, here's how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. 
in terms of story structure, in terms of like, yeah, yeah. in terms of story structure and also just like essays tend to have a fairly formulaic structure when they're not Mm -hmm. super literary and I didn't study writing or anything. And so I feel like I'm just picking that up as I go along. Yeah, but I mean, having read your book, it's uh, and and you know, story essays can be formulaic, but I feel yeah. like there's room for them to be what they want to be right now. And I'm sure that you have that innate gut knowledge of it, right? Yeah. And yeah, does, yeah. Go on. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I I would <laughs> like, like I to so. be like, oh yeah, I'm great at this. <laughs> but I really, I have a few like trusted editors. And, and like people who read my work before it goes to like the real editor at the mm-hmm. publication. Yeah. And I rely really heavily on that, yeah. on just being able to like write the draft, send it to Nikki and be like, please like help me. And then honestly, like that feedback, it usually gets me over the hump. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, this works. Um, so for me, working with I, working with an editor is really one of the greatest joys of writing to be like, okay, we're really not alone. We feel so lonely, but yes. we're not always. That is my next question is what is your biggest joy? So is it the working with the editors or I think it's working with, working with the editor and also that feeling where after trying and trying and trying and feeling like, okay, I'm just wandering through the wilderness when it finally seems to just like click into place. Yeah. I love that feeling. Yeah. And combine that with an editor helping you do <laughs> that clicking into place. That is just perfection. I, I am of the firm belief that we learn more about writing than we could ever learn anywhere else by having our work edited by mm-hmm. a good editor. That's the number one place we can learn. I totally agree. I love the way you say that. How long did you work with your editor at um, the publishing house for yeah. your book? I had a pretty unusual situation where I met the person who became my editor when I was querying looking for an agent. Oh, wow. That's uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Very uncommon. And it was her first job in publishing. And I was sending out these query letters. She was working like a temp job, reading the slush pile. And she, yeah. And she was like, you know, we don't take memoirs that don't have research in them. Would you consider adding research? And like, I sent her back something. It wasn't very good. And then I sent back another draft, like literally a year later. And she had gotten a job as an editor and the agency forwarded it to her. Um, Yeah. And so then we met up and this was back in 2018 where she was like, here's what I need to see from you for this book. Um, And in the intervening time, like I got a concussion. I took a bunch of classes to learn how to write essays. But then in early 2021, she bought the book. So I guess it's been like more than five years, like really since early on in the process. Yeah. She, I mean, and it was like, she really got it. She like, the book is really like a collaboration between the two of us. Mm, I love that so much. That's one of those absolute victory stories. And she brought this, she was able to, to land this plane that she wanted to land, you know? Yeah. With your your book. Oh, that's gorgeous. Can you share a craft tip of any sort that you have picked up along the way? My favorite part of the writing process is when I have a draft that I'm ready to send out to somebody and I do my read through. And this is what John McPhee, the essayist, calls his draft number four. 
Yeah. And I'm so jealous that it's only his fourth draft. <laughs> but um <laughs> I know he might he might be exaggerating. Let's let's I feel hope. like he is. I think so. <laughs> Depends on how you define draft, right? Um and so what I do is I read through the essay, ideally out loud if I can stomach it, and I write down any words that seem really important or that seem to be coming up a lot. And if any synonyms come to mind at the same time, I add those to the list. And then I go down that list of words and I control F to find them in the document and then basically see how many repetitions there are. And so a rule that I learned for op-ed writing was in like a 1500 word piece, try not to have a like proper noun more than three times. And sometimes you can't avoid it, but like just going and looking at like, okay, what are the synonyms for this word? It often tells me if like my writing so far is like too general or if it's too specific and often just brings up aspects that I hadn't really considered before, but that you can actually just work into a piece literally just by picking the more specific word. Because it's going to trigger your brain to think about that word and to kind of expand around those concepts. I yeah, I totally love that. And if anybody is listening to this and panicking, yes, it is a very, very hard thing to see for yourself, especially before your before drafts four, five, or six, um, to see those repeated words. And that it, and for me, the only way I can ever see repeated words is if I'm reading it out loud, because otherwise our eyes gloss over it. But for there's something about the the hearing it audibly that audibly that that make them jump out. Do you find that? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, and and I just cringe when I hear the same word repeated too many times. Like I'm really trained like that. And I find myself judging my judging and I have to be like, no, that's normal. That's totally fine. And now we're going to go through this essay about mental health and college applications. And we're going to be like, okay, when is someone a student versus when are they an applicant versus when are they a high school senior? Right. And really right. pick like what word for that specific context, like means the most. Oh, that's a, that's a good example too. Yeah. And then when you do start seeing your own word repetition, like you said, you will see it everywhere else. And you're like, why, why, why did you use the word tabletop four times in the last two paragraphs? You know, where where was your editor? Yeah. (laughs) That's a lovely tip. And I've never thought about it. That's such a great idea. Thank you. What is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you in your writing career? Um, I have two here where one is the people who read my manuscript really early on mm. and made me feel like it wasn't bad. And I think that was just so, it came so far and that was like so selfless of them. Oh. How really, much did really it change in the time that they read it to the time that it was published? Completely. <laughs> like nothing, like nothing was the same, <laughs> really. Um, and one of my friend's moms like wrote me like a whole critique letter. She mailed me like the printed out manuscripts. Oh. And that was really, I mean, that was the draft that transformed it. Oh. And she told me, here's some books, like read these books, do the exercises. And that was when everything really clicked. So she was a writer, obviously. Yeah. She, she knew what she was yeah. doing. Shout out to Lee Page. Uh, who's publishing lots of poems and essays and stuff in Montana. Thank you, Lee. What a tremendous gift though. The the gift of that time and that, um, that faith that she had in you and this story too. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 
So what is the kindest thing you've ever done for yourself as a writer? So my first inclination is to say taking weekends off for myself or giving myself the leeway of just having like a day or two off that actually really it was really transportive to just have the space to rest and then just come back refreshed what was the tipping point when you made that change for me it was really when i i took time off between two corporate jobs while i was working mm. on the book mm-hmm. and then i was you know i was writing during the days but monday to friday but then when I took a new corporate job, I tried to just stick with that or be like, I have to give myself one one weekend day. Like Sunday, mm-hmm. it's going to be like the day of rest. Mm-hmm. No writing. Yeah. And easier and, said than yeah. done. It is, it is. You said the word transformative, though. What is what is that? How has it changed things for you? Yeah. Well, OK, so this weekend, this past weekend, I I worked basically all weekend. And now it's Wednesday that we're talking and I feel like I'm just in this fog Mm. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I really just need a day to reset and to like see everything with the fresh eyes. And I'm one of those people where when I sleep, I often dream about what I'm writing or what I'm working on. And then I often just wake up and I'm like, okay, now I know how to do it. Yeah. So So I'm just holding on. I'm holding on to Saturday. (laughs) Um, the brain is yeah. like, please, just I need. I'm working during the day. I'm working at night with the dreams. I just want some downtime to to yeah. to stare yeah. straight ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good for you. That's a really very healthy place to be. And a lot of writers, you know, we fit the writing into the pockets of time where we can. And there will be people listening to this who, you know, have to work on the write on the weekends. Yeah. But I think the point of this is to find the place also where you can unplug, where you can rest. We all are worthy of and deserve rest. I, I know that um Becca Syme always says that, you know, uh all all free time is not usable writing time. Mm. And that was something that kind of blew my mind the first time I heard it. I'm like, no, all all free time should be work time. I mean I I should be working. I should be writing. But it is not free all free time is not usable time. It has to be rest time too. Yeah. I feel like writers, we can be so hard on ourselves for procrastinating. Mm -hmm. But then now that I, now that I have deadlines, I'm realizing like, oh, if I don't take this moment to, to eat a meal, to work out, to take care of myself. But you know, when I don't have a deadline, I literally, it won't happen. And then I'll be really broken down when I'm trying to get through, you know, fact check on some tedious points. And so it's like, oh, I think I think like procrastination or even prioritizing is like one of the most powerful tools that we have. Yeah. 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 I, I totally felt myself respond very viscerally when you said that. I'm like, oh, no, I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to rest. I don't have to take breaks. I don't, I don't, but I, but I do. I'm just not good at, not good at it at all. <laughs> okay. So um, what is the best book that you have read recently and why did you love it? So I'm pretty obsessed with um, we were once a family by Roxana Ascarian. Mm. Um, yes, so it is coming out a few weeks from when we're taping this, mm-hmm. and it is the story of the Hart family murder suicide here in the U.S. And so, basically, this couple um, in in California they adopted six black children from Texas, and then they drove them off a cliff. <gasps> yeah, and it's this like wild true crime story of like what was going on in this family and the reporter is like 
you know, basically reconstructing everything she can. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also really an expose of the foster care and adoption systems in the U.S. And if like as someone who reads a lot of nonfiction, you know, there's there's a lot of pressure to like have an argument to make a point. Um, But this book, it did such an amazing job of both like really educating me. And I was in the foster care system myself. Right. And so I was like, what am I going to learn from this book? But I mean, I learned so, so much at the same time as it was just a thriller. Like I opened it up at two in the morning when I couldn't sleep and the sun rose, like the birds started chirping and I was still like in my seat. I was thirsty. I needed water, but I was not going to move. That sounds exactly up my alley. Thank you. I will be putting that on my to be red pile when it comes out. Um, Speaking of to be red piles, can you please tell us about your book? Maybe give us a little bit of a log line. Tell us what it's about. So my book is called Acceptance and it is a story about um, my adolescence. Both my parents had severe mental illnesses. Um, My mom was a hoarder and instead took me to get medicated. And so I spent time in the teen mental health system, in foster care. I was homeless for a while. And the whole time I was obsessed with the Ivy League. And so it's both a chronicle of the American dream and an indictment of it. And really looks at the dark side of the American fixation with resilience. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with Angela Duckworth's, you know, work on on grit. Mm. Oh my gosh. Have you you read Quit? (laughs) Um, it's called quit. Is, it's called quit, and it's I'm I've lost oh that. It's gosh. huge right now. But this this uh, this writer's argument is that quit is the is the opposite the the opposite side of the coin of grit, and it has to be done. It has we have yeah. to quit things, and we have to know when to quit. And it talks about um, uh, sunk cost fallacy, and it's just it's one of those nonfiction books that you can't also can't put down because it's so much about. Yes, the American obsession with the resilience and how fucked up it is in so many ways. Yeah. I think you might really like this book called Quit. Okay, so, well, I'm adding um, that to my CBR pile. <laughs> I think I think you will really, really like it. One, uh, but I want to go back to your book, Acceptance. Um, something that, uh, because I, I love memoir, I write memoir, I teach memoir, it's, it's one of my obsessions. And something that I'm continually frustrated with in memoir when I read it is I can feel when somebody is holding me at arm's length and mm. I mean, God bless Tara Westover, the book, you know, educated was great, but I never quite like, I, there was always, yeah. there was always something pushing me. And in many, many memoirs or something pushing me away. And you always kept the reader so close to you. Like we mm. really believed that we are and were right with you in those moments. And I just want to commend you for the incredible job that you did with that. And of course, this is all curation and, with memoir, we are choo- just like in any other part of our life. We're choosing who to let in, where, and how much. But yeah, you did such a good, uh, such an incredible job of of that true deep connection with your reader and that trust that you gave them to come along this ride. And I just found it really phenomenal. Thank well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It was it was gorgeous. I just I ate it up with a spoon. And I was so grateful to Tiffany for telling me about your book. So where can we find you online? So you can find me at my website on emmyneatfeld.com. And I have a Substack newsletter where I send out my articles and also a little bit of the backstory of how it came together, how I pitched it, 
um, as well as just recommendations of things that I really, really love and some giveaways. Awesome. And that is all accessible from amyneatfield.com. Yes. And you can also follow me on Twitter if anyone's still there or Instagram. <laughs> I'm, I'm every once in a while. We had an earthquake the other day. So I was on Twitter again for a moment because it's very good for earthquakes. You know, more information. <laughs> it's there great for earthquakes. That, that should be the tagline. <laughs> Twitter for earthquakes and, and whatever else. <laughs> Emmy, thank you. Thank you so much. It has been such a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate your time and good luck with your compilation of the article tonight. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.